Hello, everyone. This is Eric Pennington, and welcome to the Spirit of EQ podcast. We're glad that you've tuned in. A few things we wanted to tell you at the beginning of the show, and that's this podcast was created to be a tool to help you, primarily to discover and grow your EQ. Science and our own lived experiences confirm that the better we are at managing our emotions, the better we're going to be at making decisions, which leads to a better life. And that's something we all want. We're glad that you've taken out the time today to listen and hope that something that you hear will lead to a breakthrough. Hey, one last thing. We'd really appreciate a review on whichever platform you use to listen. And if you want to, leave some comments about what you heard today, as well as follow and subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode as we continue this journey. And with that, the show begins. Hello, everyone. This is Eric Pennington with The Spirit of EQ, and welcome to The Spirit of EQ podcast. Life is a journey. Spirit of EQ helps shape and guide the road ahead for individuals, leaders, teams, and organizations striving to realize their full potential through emotional intelligence. Spirit of EQ is a coaching and consulting company that assists individuals and businesses to reach their full potential by developing emotional intelligence. In business, managers and leaders recognize the value of training to develop leadership skills. What they may not realize is that those skills are far more effective when they pay attention to not only performance, but also to people. Emotional intelligence is a crucial skill because people drive performance and emotions drive people. Not with me today is my partner, Jeff East. He is out ill and we wish him well. Uh, Non-COVID related, uh, but unfortunately not able to make it. And uh, joining us today, a very special guest, Alisa Word. And uh, we're very excited that she's on with us today. So, Alisa, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, what you're involved in? I always tend to work much better when I let the guests do that than me trying to butcher titles and all that other good stuff. Absolutely. So I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist, as well as an emotional intelligence practitioner and assessor. I do a lot of speaking on various topics uh, that correlate to emotional intelligence and, and how that, that runs every part of our life, pretty much. Um, and some of the things that I'm actually passionate about, in addition to that, is working with families that have a chronic health condition, which is often a hidden disability, uh, and that's life-threatening food allergies, which are sometimes mm. contact, ingestible, and airborne as well uh, as comorbid disorders that those families deal with. Because it's important for us to remember that, you know, emotional intelligence is in everything. So it's certainly in the way that we manage uh, those diseases and those around us manage relationships with us. Wow, that's really great. And Aliza, that, that was one of the things in our conversation uh, before the show some time ago that really kind of piqued my interest, uh, certainly because we have in common a, a child who has severe food allergies, uh, my son, your daughter, and um, just the role that that plays from a parenting perspective. And, you know, today's show, you know, we're looking at some of those things that for parents that maybe are dealing with because, you know, let's face it, I mean, the, the food allergy thing seems to be on a continual uptick, um, unfortunately, right? Absolutely. You know, there was a time when we would constantly cite that there were 10 to 12 million people in the United States with food allergies. But more recently, as studies have become better, we found that there are 32 million Americans wow. that are impacted by potentially life-threatening food allergies. And that's a huge jump when you think about, you know, how many people there are in this country and the fact that food is everywhere. Food yeah. is, is at the crux of how we even have gatherings, right? Yep. So yeah. we're always constantly managing that. So yeah, having that connection when I was talking to you was like, wow, you know, here's another person that's dealing with this. Well, you know, what's interesting and, um, you know, I have been in the emotional intelligence realm uh, probably four years. Uh, I've always been in that space of people development, but specifically focused on emotional intelligence the last four. And I think back in time, Elisa, in managing my son's issues, 
um, and how important it was. And again, I guess it would be the unconscious EQ, right? <laughs> Where you're making these decisions uh, about your son or your child's health um, and and I can look back and I can see where emotional intelligence did help in a big way. Um, could you talk a little bit about your journey in, in that realm as it relates to uh, your your daughter and uh, maybe the role that emotional intelligence played in helping you in that regard? You know what's funny about that is sometimes, and I talk about this often, is that people don't realize that they are practicing their EQ when they are practicing their EQ um, until it becomes a thing and the, the light bulb comes on and you get a label for it. And there's now a new term mm-hmm. in your life. You go, oh, wait, I think I have that. Yeah. Uh, so, so when she was first diagnosed, it was very difficult because there weren't people in my circle that I knew that were dealing with that. And there also weren't people that looked like me that were, that were dealing like that. So it was really kind of like a double whammy for me, mm-hmm. feeling very isolated at that time and really having to go in and be the researcher, find out information, create my own resources, create my own path to be able to support my daughter, support myself, and also educate those around me. And as it pertains to EQ and that, I mean, certainly I had to be aware of my own self. When you're dealing with something that's a health issue, and especially when it comes to your child, Mm -hmm. you you can become very passionate about it. It can become very emotional, and you might get stuck you know, in, in that, in that whole uh, reaction cycle and, and really begin to start, you know, panicking when people say things or freaking out when people say stuff to you that doesn't sound very kind. Um, you know, simple statements like, oh, well, they're missing out on everything, you know, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, they kind of are missing out on getting sick too. So, you know, it's, you know, things like that, um, really force you to, to really kind of step back for a minute and have a really accurate self-perception of how you deal with people, how you deal with conversations with mm. others. So you have to identify your own emotions and be able to figure out what to do with them through that process. And even in dealing with healthcare professionals, not all healthcare professionals are created equal, and some of them just don't have that bedside manner to be able to navigate something like that, especially because in these cases, you know, every person's allergic reaction is different. Yeah. And yours might have hives and mine might have, you know, a bellyache and her, you know, breathing issues. So uh, there's a lot of EI that has to go into that, you know, and you're thinking about being perspective taking and and having empathy for your child but also you know when people don't have empathy with for you what do you do about that you mm-hmm. know so there's a lot of reflection that has to happen in there so i i think uh one thing that i'm hearing uh from you is that you know obviously a parent doesn't need to go get a certification in emotional intelligence but certainly digging into the subject and the learnable skill that it is could be beneficial right is that kind of what you're saying too Oh, yeah, absolutely it is. Because, you know, something, uh, again, going back to that, being passionate about it, and especially when it's something that is so critical, you know, one of the things that I, I had to make sure that I was even maintaining my, my own impulse control, for instance, right? So mm-hmm, my, my mm-hmm. self-management yep. mattered. Because when somebody is trying to tell you that something's not a certain way or they're not acting fast enough, you kind of, you know, at that moment, you, you pretty much drop the ball. And, you know, and is that going to help the situation? It's actually not. Uh, But at the same time, how do you get across this idea of urgency Mm -hmm. to someone um, at that moment, you know, without having them paint you as the helicopter parent or the crazy parent or the angry parent or whatever, you know, terms Mm -hmm. that come along with that Mm -hmm. when you're really trying to advocate for your child? Yeah. Wow. So I, I've got to ask you, and, and I, I know I've encountered it, and my gut says maybe uh, you have too. Um, in those situations where you, you found uh, a provider that's dismissive, maybe discounts the struggle that you and your child is going through, have you experienced that? And then maybe if you could think about it, what, how did you handle it? Well, I can think of uh, really quickly two specific incidences. My daughter, um, some of the kids that have life-threatening food allergies 
also, um, you know, at this point, I call it graduate, unfortunately, um, to the next level sometimes, which is getting a disorder called eosinophilic esophagitis, which, uh, you know, is in the esophagus where they grow these white blood cells, you know, eosinophils that don't really belong there, mm-hmm. uh, and they're triggered by food. So it's kind of like a whole other level of dealing with these food allergic and food-related type issues. Yeah. And I recall when she first had an issue with that, and she ended up in the ER, and I'm pushing, pushing pushing, pushing to get, you know, somebody to take it seriously. I'm talking to some friends I had, that, you know, pretty high up on the food chain and the food allergy research world, and they're telling me to do all these things, mm-hmm. and they weren't listening to me. They just, you know, completely were dismissing everything I was saying. And so finally I had to dig my heels in and say, I'm not leaving this hospital because it will put my child's life in danger, and if so, then you all are going to be liable. And because of that, they ended up calling in a GI to work with a gastroenterologist to work with the allergist team and found out eventually that even though they thought I was being overreactive, that she did, in fact, have this other level wow. of, um, of, 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 of an issue. And a, and a secondary uh, issue that happened, too, which often happens sometimes, you know, whether it's a gender-related thing or sometimes, you know, people of color type of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a particular physician who didn't see my, my daughter tends to have a secondary reaction once she has the first one and we've given her epinephrine mm-hmm. and I can look at her face and tell that she's blushing. Yeah. But because her skin was darker, he didn't see it. The, the provider didn't see it. And I'm, I'm telling this man it's coming back. She's having a second reaction. You administer a second round of ep- epinephrine. He's arguing with me. So I literally went into my purse, grabbed her injector that I had her second one that I had yeah. with me and I shoved it in her leg. And he looked at me, and the other, and the nurse who was there, he saw it, but he didn't want to cross what the physician was saying and stood there. Oh, my. So then at that point, once her face started to kind of change back, that's when it was noticed. So there have been times when, you know, things have happened. So there needs to be more education all the way around uh, for everyone and um you know, including parents, because mm-hmm. sometimes we, we could be overreactive sometimes, which could make the situation worse as well. Yeah, yeah. I I think about um, a situation uh, that I'm came to my mind from my son. It was it was um, it certainly wasn't as life uh, altering as one you described, but it was that. Um, I guess it was one of those things, you know, when you come away from a conversation and you're just a little miffed or perturbed at the attitude. Um, this In this particular situation, the the individual basically kind of, I don't know, in so many words, oh, is it really that big a deal? (laughs) And, uh, you know, for us it was like, well, there's a reason why we don't let him come to events without having an EpiPen um, because – it's a serious deal. And um, I think one of the things that uh, – and, and again, I would say anyone out there in the audience, is a, if you're a parent and you have um, issues like uh, or, or some other type of chronic illness for your children, um, I, I can't recommend enough, again, this digesting of, of the matter around emotional intelligence because the ability to manage your emotions and your thoughts – are going to uh, the better you are at that, I should say, is the better decisions you're going to make. And in our case, like what you're just describing, sometimes that can be, uh, you know, related to uh, something life altering. Um, so when you think about that idea, you mentioned uh, I, I'm, I've got this vision in my head, Alisa, the uh, the doctor not recognizing that there was this second wave cu- coming, and part of that because of the pigment skin, right? Uh, what, do, what do you think is a way that we might be able to bring about some education to sort of maybe bring about at least a better awareness? I mean, I know change would be great, but you know where I'm going? Yeah. So fortunately, I have been an advocate in that space now for about 16 years. Mm-hmm. So I run a couple of volunteer uh, grassroots efforts. One um, is called Compassion for Anaphylaxis. And that's pretty much, again, this is 
practicing EQ without realizing you're doing yeah, it, right? Yeah, so yeah, I, right. I started compassion for anaphylaxis long before <laughs> right. I started my, my intentional EQ journey. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what part of that is. So working with families, especially families who have had issues with providers, to help give them the tools, the education, and the vocabulary even to be able to have conversations that the providers are going to listen to. And if they don't listen and if they're not working with them, giving them the, the you know, the courage or helping them to see mm-hmm. their own motivation to find another provider who suits their family better. So I, um, so, so that's one of the things that I, I do with education and outreach because some, sometimes we do some grief support, you know, because grief can be either, you know, life loss or way of life loss. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, so we do some stuff with that too, because it is a big change uh, for many families when you have these life threatening food allergies, especially because there are, t- are nine top foods that actually comprise 90% of all allergic reactions when it comes to food. And those mm. nine foods are ones that are significant in pretty much just about everybody's diet. Um, so, so that, that grief is an issue. But then the other thing is, uh, during COVID, myself, along with some other advocates, were able to put together, um, some, a Facebook group so that we could support families mm-hmm. that were going through things at that time. Certain things like people were scrambling for food. They were buying the food that we normally buy that are safe for our kids. And we go into the store and it's not there. And suddenly we can't find stuff. The people are oh, now yeah. like panicked and scared and afraid. And, you know, and even some have been angry with people in a grocery store. Why are you picking that up? That's not something that you really need. Right. Right. And um, so helping people to figure out better ways to manage their the, the stress and anxiety that comes along with their fears and comes along with, you know, this anticipation of what is and what is not and helping them to understand the messages behind the emotions that are causing some of the behaviors that they're, that, that they end up kind of spinning into. And, um, but again, also, you know, having conversations with physicians, even if you have a a run-in and it doesn't go well with your physician, schedule some time to talk about it, you know, get some literature from some of the larger organizations sent to that specific doctor's office, send it to them yourself. Because those things are important. There's also representatives that do lots of, lots of, you know, outreach work. I used to do outreach work for the Asthma Allergy Foundation Network of, a mother, of Mothers of America. Mm-hmm. And we would go to allergist office and drop off information. Just like you see people from like the pharmaceutical industry, they drop off information. Mm-hmm. Um, take part in research studies. Take part in an advisory board. There are parental advisory boards for this stuff. And, you know, and they're always asking these same types of questions. What can we do differently? What are your experiences? You know, how can we change this? Because they want to make sure that when these larger organizations are contacting these physicians and, and providers and um, organizations that provide health services, that they're having the conversations that need to be had. But they've got to hear from the patients to know that these are the experiences that we're dealing with. Yeah, that's uh, and and I think the message is clear there, right? That it's really about getting involved, right? And, and absolutely, and and making your voice heard. And and I want to say to the audience on two fronts: one, uh, a lot of the information that Lisa and I are talking about, we'll have in the show notes for access for you. So you can, if you want to reach out or you want to get more information, learn more about uh, some of these things. And then the other thing is. Um, Everybody's personality is different. Um, I know, for example, my wife, Elisa, she's a strong personality advocate type person. So when we'd be in a doctor's office and a doctor would flash attitude, I'd almost kind of go, oh, my goodness, he doesn't know what he just did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because my wa- bear. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, and quite frankly, I in, 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 in all cases. Right. I mean, it's like. You know, when it comes to your kids, you'll you'll summon courage, right? Right, and sometimes fury if necessary. Um, But I think you're you you mentioned some really good things because I think there is a desire to get it right in the medical community. It's like so many other things, right? Is this idea about it's not what I said; it's how I said it to you, right? And I think that's that human dynamic. can you talk a little bit about because you mentioned uh, that you're in the DEI space as a consultant, 
And I, I, I was wondering about access to the kind of care and the kind of education for those in the minority community um, as it relates uh, specific to the food allergy piece. How is that going these days? I mean, is that something where it's a it's a big, small, large problem? How how is that? Well, so now I think um, you know there there has been a push for a very long time from a lot of advocates, uh, just kind of really, really pushing. And uh, one other piece that I I was doing for a while was uh, the Food Allergic Multicultural Society of Diversity, mm -hmm. um, and that was recognizing. Uh, the differences in the way that people eat in BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. Because, for instance, I had run into a physician who happened to be Indian, and they used the fenugreek spice uh, a lot in, in her culture. Mm -hmm. And that became an issue because suddenly they weren't invited to family events anymore because something was wrong with her kid, right? Yeah. And that just wasn't something that was on my radar. But then I started noticing things like in Italian families, if there's a child that has a milk allergy, because milk is actually the top allergy, even though most kids grow out of milk early on. Mm -hmm. um, but milk is the number one allergen. And if you're an Italian family and, uh, you, you know, lots of cheeses and stuff like that, then the same thing was happening where these gatherings was like, well, why is she bringing that kid? Why do we have to do this? And why do we have to do that? Mm. I've had, you know, really good experience for the most part with my family. I did have one particular relative um, that was just not supportive in that way at all, but I had to kind of keep my kid off to the side with that. But, but my point in that is that, you know, we've kind of pushed for that sort of thing for a long time, but to be quite honest, last year in light of all of the, light that was shown on uh, racial issues with uh, the, the George, you know, Floyd situation mm -hmm. and Breonna Taylor and those sorts of things. Many organizations got a big push to do more with mm -hmm. DEI. And that also included research organizations in this particular space, as well as, you know, medical organizations and pharmaceutical companies in this space saying, what can we do more? What can we do better? Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a magazine that's kind of in this realm, and they do a lot of great stuff. And I've had opportunity to really talk about the disparities that exist um, and, and what we need to do about that. So mm -hmm. advocates like myself and like those, the others that are out there in these organizations need to have real-world conversations with physicians because they, they do want to do the right thing. But the thing is, too, you know, they're overworked. Uh, and, and there's issues with insurances and getting people paid oh, yeah. like you're supposed to be getting paid, <laughs> yep. you know, and then, you know, malpractice insurance. And there's only so many things they can do in a day. But there's also that other component, too. And that really gets fixed by us having real dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that means that you've got to email your, you know, the practice uh, administrator in that office if you've got to, you know, if you really like that position, you know, and, you, and, and most of them are willing to have the conversation with you. But also, people must keep in mind, when you have chronic health conditions, this is why we have specialists. Your primary care physicians are great, but your specialist is going to be the person that you need to go to who's oh, yeah. really going to have that conversation, who's really going to get that information. And a board-certified allergist, they're the ones who are going to be able to provide you with not only information for yourself, but the documentation to take with you everywhere. Yeah. You know, we, we, have an, we had an emotional support dog for a long time because it was really tough for my daughter because she was so isolated and we used to take that dog on the plane. Well, we got a letter at the time because we take the dog on the plane mm -hmm. and it seemed like silly to some people, but it was really necessary when you're in an enclosed cabin and you're concerned about things that could take your life being all around you when people are eating nuts on the plane. That's yeah. scary. Yeah. You know, yeah. so having those conversations and finding the right providers who understand what ethical responsibility is, who understand what moral responsibility is, who understand what it is to respect families and respect these children and, and even adults with food allergies. Um, you know, so organizations are doing more. They're doing better. The statistics are out there. Um, at Northwestern, Dr. Ruchi Gupta is doing some really great work uh, with the, uh, her um, program called CIFAR, mm -hmm. and they're actually – that they're one of the ones who has been trying to do this for a long time when nobody else was doing it, you know, trying to make sure that people see that they're, you know, they're in food deserts. It's a problem, right? Um, mm -hmm. For families of in BIPOC communities or, or, you know, communities where there are some poverty issues or wherever, um, you know, so those are conversations that are, are happening too. Yeah. And we've got to be able to, you know, help people see the bigger picture because, 
I, I did. Uh, I was at a large food manufacturer once at their quality control uh, department, and they're wondering, like, why is she here? Like, you know, what's this have to do with <laughs> our food allergy stuff? And you know, and some of the people kind of had this attitude, like, okay, just get this over with, and they didn't think it impacted them. And I asked us, you know, do you pay for health insurance? And they said, well, yeah. I said, don't you hate when it keeps going up every year? They said, yeah. So, what do you think that is? And they stood there, well, because they're just trying to take our money. I said, actually, do you know how many people don't have health insurance and the cost of going to the emergency room for a food allergic reaction can be double or triple another reaction if they don't have insurance and it's going to impact you? So this actually does impact you. Mm. So we want to make sure that we lessen the number of, of reactions. So it's important for your job, from a quality assurance perspective, be done right all the time. Because it's going to impact your bottom line, too, even when you think it doesn't. Yeah, we that's all powerful. impact one another. Yeah, that's, you know, that's do, really but powerful. But we all impact one another some kind of way. And if we connect the dots, we'll see it. But yeah. it's finding that, that way to help people see the buy-in. And then that, that's when you get people to start having the conversations and making sustainable change. I think about the uh, the personal responsibility side of the equation, um, Elise, and I'm thinking of my... 19-year-old son who pretty much has made it clear that um, I lost all of my good, solid education when he turned 18. <laughs> so I, you're actually, Lisa, you're talking to one of the stupidest people on the planet right now. Um, no, no, just, just a little joke. So Grant, if you're out there. Um, but here's what's interesting. I mean, he's he's 19, he's a college student, and he's kind of doing his thing, right? And my wife and I will remind him, hey, you know, you've got severe food allergies. You need to be careful. You need to be watchful and all of the rest. And we've kind of done the shift to uh, making it more about less about the allergic side of it and more about the what's the best thing I can put inside of my body. Right. And 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 realizing in his case it's not going to be nuts, <laughs> no matter what right, ketogenic right. diet or whatever. But in general, within the confines of what he's able to eat, what is it that I'm putting inside of my body, and what is its? Where's the benefit? And and trust me, uh, and those of you in the audience, <laughs> it, it's, it feels like a very uh, uphill battle with him in this regard. But we, we're trying to be that influence that says, you know, pay close attention because I sometimes and, – and I found this interesting when we were really knee-deep in his allergies as a kid about how food manufacturers would change the ingredients and you never knew it happened. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. All the time. Right? All the time. So I, I, I remember my wife would come home from the store and I'd say, you know, hey, I – I, where's the such and such that Grant likes so much? And she goes, no, we can't, we can't, we can't buy that anymore. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. Well, they changed it. They added this whatever ingredient. Uh, and, you know, my wife is very laser focused on reading the labels because she had at some point, right, gotten to the place where she was going, never forget to check the label. Just, just do it because it can change and you don't know about it. Um, and I don't know if that's maybe improved a bit since – you know, what thinking 10 years ago. Um, but what are your thoughts about the food companies? Are, are I mean, are they getting better at this thing or do are they still in that, again, changing ingredients without a clear notification? Well, you know, it's funny because I come from the old school before they actually had this whole thing where they were putting things clearly on labels when my daughter first started because my daughter, she's going to be 18 here in a, in a few weeks. Right. And um, so, you know, back in 2004, and then they said it was going to be in effect in 2006 when FALCBA, which was the Food Allergy Labeling Consumer Protection Act, was put into place. Um, you know, that was a time where we, we had to know, like, the real name of stuff, like the chemical name of it, right? Or yeah. Whatever that was. Yeah. And um, so I had to walk around with this big, big old list of stuff and comparing things. Grocery, grocery shopping took like three hours as opposed to an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I get the whole label reading thing. You know, one of the tough things that actually happened during the pandemic was they actually gave more leniency to providers as far as um, 
what they were putting on the labels during the pandemic in order to be able to increase or, or I'm sorry, decrease the amount of time for production of products. So that was really scary for us. Yeah. Wondering what, so are you going to take off the top eight or top nine or what are you going to do? But all those little extra labels that people are putting may contain or made in a factory, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, you know, those things weren't on there at first. And then all of a sudden people's lawyers were like, cover yourself because maybe it didn't have nuts, but if I put may contain nuts and just on the outside chance that it does then you know now i'm gonna go ahead and 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 cover myself Mm -hmm. so some people got comfortable with that and they were like you know because it says may contain i'm gonna eat it anyway because i know it's not real others were very strict about it yeah um and then again last year when they relaxed some you know some of the uh the labeling restrictions so the thing of it is you have to know what you're putting in you and you have to decide you have to make a, a conscious decision of whether or not you want to risk going through an allergic reaction. Anyone who's ever been through one mm-hmm. probably doesn't want to do it again. Yeah. And 16 to 16 to 24 year olds are our most high risk population uh, when it comes to dealing with this because, you know, they know everything. And, <laughs> right. you know, and, and that's okay. And yeah. That's okay. And I'm happy that they do. Yep. Um, however, experience has taught us that mm. even when you know everything, there's still more to know. Yep. So, um, you know, I, I say with that, when I, especially when I'm dealing with people that have kids in, in that space, you have to find what matters to them and what's important to them. And you have to be able to correlate that and find a value system connected to make it more important for them to focus on not having a reaction, not being exposed, than, than to, to, to ignore it. So, you know, a lot of times kids, they want to go out and party. They want to do this. They don't want their friends to know about all this stuff. Man, if you, know, if you think you'd be embarrassed about them knowing about it, imagine how embarrassed you'd be if you broke out in hives and you couldn't breathe and you didn't have your EpiPen and your friends were there. Now, that sounds really harsh to say, yep. but sometimes you're having these conversations with your kids, and they're at that age where you have to be really direct with them. And they might not, they might ignore you at first, but I promise you, they're going to process that in their head. And they're mm. going to think to themselves, I might need to be a little more careful. But also, it's important for them to have a, have a buddy program. Do their friends know that they have this issue? Do, does any of their, their, their close friends know? Do their close friends have your phone number? Does the college know? Because mm. it's important to have that taken care of. And, you know, when they first go to college that first year, it's really, it's a lot easier to get that in their file then because, you know, they think you're still in control. Even though they're 18 and you're really not because, you know, <laughs> you know cause they're the ones going to college, even though you're paying a bill. Yeah. But, um, you know, you <laughs> right. can have those conversations to get that in, in, the, in the folder in their file. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and contact the colleges and, and there's a, there's college programs out here now with some of the food allergy organizations where you can find colleges that are, are more friendly in that way. And you have material that you can send to the colleges. Um, and you can also, you know, check out their food programs. So it, it's really finding what is valuable to your child and tying it to that and being really creative in that conversation as to why it's important to do this. Because if you're worried about, I don't know, how you're going to look, how you going to look when you're out hanging out with this girl you like or this guy you like and your face is full of highs, how are you going to look then? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yep. and it's just that's, that's how you have to have to deal with it sometimes. And it, it's um, and they get it. They're smart, you know. And then the other part is when you when you do this all along, they're only going to go so far. They're only going to go so far. Mm-hmm. You have to trust that you've given them the tools to do what needs to be done. And then um, I know parents that'll do a, you know, a check, you know, and they'll they'll call their kid in college and say, hey, can you give me the, the you know, the date or the lot number on your thing? Because I need to make sure I have that in my files. Well, it's yeah. going to require them to go and make sure that they're finding their EpiPen so they know where it is. You know, so there's some ways Yeah, that's great. That's that's it. a real creative uh, uh, process. I, I'll take that as a tip to uh, to use. <laughs> um, hadn't thought of that. Um, so, um, Elisa, I, you've given some great insights just in general through our conversation here. Is there anything else that you might throw out as an insight for a parent? Uh, with someone uh, with a child that has uh, 
not just a chronic allergy issue, but just you know something along that line of of a chronic illness that uh, could be helpful based on what you've experienced. Absolutely. The thing about it is when you're when you're when you have a diagnosis of a some sort of chronic illness, all of a sudden life is reimagined, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the way that humans are and the way our brains are, and we have this whole negativity bias thing that can happen, then we tend to see, you know, all the bad things about this new diagnosis as opposed to understanding that there are some really great teachable moments and some opportunities for growth. There's opportunities for us to learn to be courageous in, in having conversations with physicians and, ha- and other people. There's opportunity for us to, to set boundaries that are healthy for ourselves and for our loved ones. There's opportunity for us to learn, learn about, you know, different ideas um, and, and learn how to be resilient and embrace letting things go that aren't really serving us anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and learning how to find new ways of doing things, new hol- new ways of, of managing the holidays. You know, it, it's disheartening when you can't have your holiday the way that you used to. Mm. But what about creating new traditions that are absolutely unique and amazing to you? Kids remember how you made them feel and the experiences they had. If you focus on what you all lost, your kids will focus on what you all lost. Kids yeah. do as well as you do. Yeah. So just remembering that in your new normal, it's your new normal, and it's okay. And and give yourself permission to, to grieve the loss of what used to be, but also to be excited and anticipate what's coming and what's actually going to be happening in the future and how much you can learn and how much they can teach you. Let your kid be a teacher. Let them teach you. Mm. And the great thing about today's kids, so many illnesses and ailments and disorders are happening in the world. A lot of these kids are so accepting and embrace one another when it comes to this stuff. And it's really kind of the adults that have the problem more often than the kids. Yeah, I I do agree with you on that. The generational uh, divide is pretty clear on that one. Yeah. (laughs) That's into it Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I want to pivot a little bit uh, to what you are working on now, what's inspiring you in your current, uh, frame, uh, your work or your ventures, uh, what's going on there? Oh, I have a lot of things going on. <laughs> That's not surprising so, um, to me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny because there, there's an, there's a, a women's, uh, organization called WCAPS, which is women, um, women of color advancing peace, uh, security, and conflict all around the world. It's a global uh, global movement on in, about international security and peace and outreach to human and mm-hmm. reaching human rights initiatives. And we're had they're having a conference actually tomorrow and the next day, an online conference. And I had the opportunity to record my first Tanya talk, which is kind of like a TED ish type of talk mm-hmm. for, in, in, on the women's realm. And it was really cool. So I talked about you know women are humans and humans human rights matter so i had a great opportunity to be able to, oh, to do awesome. a talk for that awesome. looking forward to to that and um you know there's ambassador ambassador bonnie jenkins um you know who worked under president obama she actually is the founder of wcap she's an amazing woman doing some really great things so i'm doing some work with her you know and some things they're doing around the world but also um there's the climate of emotions uh, on conference kind of coming up that's uh, six seconds is having so yeah. i'm happy that i'm going to be talking about food i'm actually going to be talking about having a world where we we could nourish the world and um and i think it's going to be a really great conversation about that because you know a lot of food hazards exist and it's important for us to learn how to grow our own food i started growing my own last year and it was a pretty amazing experience for me oh, wow. i hadn't done it since i was a kid yeah so you know urban urban planning urban gardening or if you just don't feel like digging in the dirt you can do it above ground right and, yeah that's um, right I, yeah. I put, yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm helping people to learn how to grow potatoes and carrots and bags and pots and you know stuff like that wow. so um and then just continuing to, to work on my coaching and my diversity work um because part of diversity is not just obviously about about race but it's also diversity of thought there's neurodiversity um and then food inclusion and, and chronic health uh, inclusion uh, the the uh, able community and being able to include folks there as well and kind of spreading the word about that working with organizations to help them find newer ways to, to deal with diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned something there uh, that really kind of piqued my interest a bit, and that is 
How would you say we're doing in the African-American community, for example? I know we're not the only ones, uh, especially when you look at America. How are we doing as it relates to the food piece? And, and, and touch on the health thing, certainly, and maybe even the, you know, the, the insecurity piece, too. Well, you know, um, African-American children are at higher risk of having life-threatening food allergies and asthma. So there's a big push to try to get people to understand that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, historically, many times in our community, as also even in Latino communities sometimes, you know, people don't want to acknowledge or deal with health issues because, and a lot of that goes back to, you know, you have to be healthy, you have to function, you have to do this, you have to do that. Um, I I had a conversation with some folks at at Morehouse College. They're doing a study called All of Us, and um, they're really looking at some of the health patterns of people in uh, in Black and African American communities to see, you know, how we are actually doing, and to be able to figure out if we can find some better uh, health outcomes for folks. But people have to get involved. They've got to get involved in clinical trials, and they don't always involve medication. We've done several of them, which have been questionnaires about um, behaviors and habits, mm-hmm. and um, we, we've got to do that. We've got to get involved. We've got to get our information. Uh, but you know, there are still some struggles out there. And then the other part of that is from a food scarcity perspective, how can I be healthy if I, if I live in a place where there is no healthy food, where every, every fruit and vegetable is wrapped in saran wrap that I buy in the grocery store? Or even if I find them, they're so old that it seems like their nutritional value is not there anymore. Yeah. And um, so, so I think so a lot of people are really getting into this movement of going back to nourishing yourself. And it's growing more and more and more. But you also see celebrities that are starting to see the issues with food deserts. And um, they're, they're taking the initiative to be able to kind of get grocery stores in some of these areas. People don't want to put grocery stores in those areas. And then when they do, the, the, the cost for food is two, three, four, or five times more than what it is in other areas. And, and like now where I live, for instance, I'm north of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you right now, within five to six miles of me, I've got six grocery stores. Who has that? Right? Yeah. People don't have that. And, you know, where I came from in Delaware, we didn't have that. I can tell you that right now. We didn't have that <laughs> at all. Um, you know, and so what happens when somebody doesn't have a car to go travel to get food or or even if they do, you know, they've got to go so far to get it. Um, you know, so so I think that there's an awakening that's happening. There is an awakening. Mm. And we're not there yet. But people are beginning to see more and more, wait a minute, we've got to do something different. So we're, we're getting there. The, the awakening is there. Well, you know what's um, interesting? we've got to be able to get more resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you. Um, you, you no, know, no, no, okay. uh, the thing that you've made me think about is that, and I'm selfishly, or I'm saying I'm, I, I, I tend to be in the corner that says eating real food is going to be the best for your health. So if some of these situations can lead to more people growing their own food, I think that is just an awesome thing. And I, and I know there, there needs to be resources, support, and all of that in that process. But, boy, I mean, sometimes I, my, my thoughts about the typical supermarket and the kind of things that they're selling on their shelves, I uh, it just it really – I, I draw a connector back to some of the health issues that we're having across the board in our country. Um, and, yeah. I, and, and I really do believe that if, if there were more urban farms and people were getting embracing that kind of lifestyle, um, the, all the better for them. You know, um, it just I think it would well, be I challenge great. people and I challenge people go to a neighborhood that's not like yours mm-hmm. and go to the grocery store. Go shopping. Go try to do your normal shopping there and see what happens, right? Yeah. It's it's a whole different type of experience. And then, you know, because people say things like I've heard, like I have a friend, I love her dearly, and she's a vegan. And, you know, she spoke to only her experience. And she kept saying, you know, this is why people are dying because they don't want to eat right. They don't want to do this. They don't want to do that. Well, you know, she and I went grocery shopping at a, a different store. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I had no idea. And I said, you know, this is the thing, whether no matter what race or ethnic ethnicity or gender or whatever you are, 
we all have some sort of privilege, whether it's earned or unearned privilege. Oh, wow. And in my earned, in my earned privilege, in my earned privilege, I live in a place where I've got access to six grocery stores. So it would be easy for me to forget that there are places that they have to get their food at the food mart by the gas station. Yep. And Alisa. And so it's important for us to remember we all have privilege. Yeah, that's uh, that's very profound. That's that's awesome uh, that you said that, because I, you know, when you think about that, if you're. Your resource for food is a place like the food mart next to the gas station or a dollar general where it's all processed. Um, it's yep. a it's a double whammy, right? I mean, you're getting the scarcity piece that's hitting you and then the negative health consequences of eating processed food. And uh, uh, that's yeah. And maybe that's another show too, right? <laughs> we could uh, we could do a part well, yeah, two on I mean, that. Because, exactly, and it's so true because if you think about it, you know, for instance, even if you were gonna, I don't know, make make a southern dinner, right? And mm-hmm. you're gonna make some old school macaroni and cheese, right? I promise you that you know, and that's not gonna necessarily be good for you. But guess what? Making it and getting all the natural ingredients yourself is going to be two, three, four times more expensive than getting a box of that processed stuff. Yeah. So what are people going to buy when they're on a budget and there is scarcity? And it's the same thing about, you know, fruits and vegetables and all those sorts of things like that. What am I going to buy? So I, I challenge people, go to go to a store, look at the prices, and look at the food, look at the sodium content. Look at what options are there. Yep. And as we exercise optimism and emotional intelligence, let's exercise some there. Let's see what options are there. Well, you know what? And um, we typically try to be as far away from politic as possible on our show. However, there is one thing that I think I can reference without getting in trouble, and that is the amount of subsidy that we pour in from a tax perspective – for foods that are not good for you. Man, wouldn't it be powerful if somebody who's living in an urban environment got subsidy to make that happen? If, if like, you got more money the healthier that you ate and the healthier ingredients that you consumed, I just think that could produce a major boon for society as a whole. But anyway, like I said, I don't <laughs> <laughs> too much on politics. No, no, and I agree because because it's not just the physical health. It's it's you know, I mean, there's cognitive development yes. that happen with poor dot poor diets. Exactly. You know? yeah. I, I mean, and I had to. I mean, as an adult, I had to unlearn a lot of stuff. I don't. I, I won't sit here and say I have the best habits because I know I don't. Yeah. But no. I'm learning and I'm changing and I'm growing and what I'm doing is leaving a legacy for my children to do different and to be better. Yes, and I'm so glad you said that too, because uh, for those of you in the audience, and you've heard it from Jeff and I as well, you know, this is a step thing. There's nobody on this show, whether it be the host or guest or producer, that can say, yeah, well, I've got that all figured out. Everybody is working on getting better. And the thing about it is, is that you're actually working on getting better. Uh, and and that's uh, that's a big part of it. Um, Elisa, I cannot thank you enough for being our guest today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And as I've said many times, you know, it's so funny. I, I talk to people, you know, sort of offline, you know, by chance or whatever. And I think in our case, uh, it was a mutual friend that connected us. You know, it was kind of like, wow, she's really she's got some great insights. And then immediately I'll go, hey, Jeff, we've got to get her on the show. And uh, here you are. So we really, really appreciate it um, for audience. Uh, there'll be more information in the show notes for anything that maybe we've talked about to hear that uh, we haven't sort of pointed out directly. But uh, Lisa, again, thank you so much for joining us. And for those in the audience, we look forward to being with you again soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Pennington with The Spirit of EQ. I'm not introducing a new episode today. I'm here to tell you some things that might help you. Jeff, you're with me as always. So how do people get in touch with us? Well, the best way is just send us an email at info at spiritofeq.com. That's awesome. Jeff, I was also thinking about reviews, and I'm notoriously bad at asking for them. So 
reviews on all of the platforms wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. You think that'd be good? I think that would be great because one, that will help us learn how to make better ones. And it's always good for us. So to we're, hear. we're not the perfect podcast host. We're close. Okay. But, all right. But, but not, still, not totally we want perfect. your feedback. We want your feedback. But it'll, it also might uh, let us know a new subject. Hey, we need to dig deeper into that. Yeah. So let us know what you think. Cool. We really appreciate that. As always, too, there is social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and we also have a YouTube channel. Those also have mechanisms or, or options for you to be able to leave a comment, a like, or those kind of things. Just want to make sure that you know how to get in touch with us. Right, Jeff? Right. We appreciate you all. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Pennington with The Spirit of EQ. I'm not introducing a new episode today. I'm here to tell you some things that might help you. Jeff, you're with me as always. So how do people get in touch with us? Well, the best way is just send us an email at info at spiritofeq.com. That's awesome. Jeff, I was also thinking about reviews, and I'm notoriously bad at asking for them, so... Reviews on all of the platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that'd be good? I think that would be great because, one, that will help us learn how to make better ones. And it's always good for us. So we're we're not the perfect podcast host. We're close. Okay. All right. But but still, we want your feedback. We want your feedback. But it also might uh, let us know a new subject. Hey, we need to dig deeper into that. So let us know what you think. Cool. We really appreciate that. As always, too, there is social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and we also have a YouTube channel. Those also have mechanisms or or options for you to be able to leave a comment, a like, or those kind of things. Just want to make sure that you know how to get in touch with us. Right, Jeff? Right. We appreciate you all. Thank you. Once again, we really appreciate you tuning in today. One of the things that Jeff and I want to bring to your attention as well is that when we created this podcast, it was not intended to take the place of a clinician. In other words, if you find yourself in a place where there's something deeper going on or something that you cannot solve on your own, we do recommend that you reach out to a clinician of some sort. This podcast is purely opinion-based And it is rooted in the desire to help you along your path in whatever way we can. However, it is never going to replace, nor should it ever be looked at as a replacement for clinical help in any way. Thanks again for tuning in.